As a driven dentist, you see the world differently. Where some see scarcity, you see abundance. When others want to give up, you keep going. You're building an amazing life of significance. That means you can't rely on ordinary advice from ordinary advisors to get to your goals. You want advice that's going to help maximize your net worth so you can take even better care of the people you love, the causes you care about, and make your dent in the universe. But the fact is, this advice remains hidden because relatively few professionals are well-versed in them, and the extremely affluent don't care to let you know about them. Join us as we pull back the curtain to reveal the often hidden advice and strategies used by today's most successful individuals and families. Welcome to Dental Wealth Nation. Here's your host, Tim McNeely. Hello, 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 everyone. I am so excited to have you here with us today. And uh, I don't know about you, but uh, I, I've been looking at my insurance premiums lately, and uh, they seem to keep going up higher and higher and higher every single month. And uh, that can be a little bit of a pain sometimes. And that's why I'm so excited that you're here today, is because by the end of this episode, you're going to know about an option to the traditional insurance marketplace that's out there for your dental practice. You're going to have a new way of thinking about your insurance and a roadmap that can help you potentially convert what is an expense into a profit center. And more importantly, you're going to feel empowered to see if this is a solution for your dental business and your dental practice. And, and when it comes to the insurance marketplace, when it comes to helping driven dental entrepreneurs really manage risk in their practice, and, uh, you know, create those profit centers we're talking about. I can't think of anyone better than Wes Sarek. Wes is Managing Director of Risk Management Advisors, and they were just named the sixth largest captive manager worldwide. What a feat, and I am so excited to have Wes here today. Wes, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Oh, man. Like, like I said, I could not be more excited to, to talk to you today, especially just in, in this current environment that we're in. And so tell us a little bit about how you got started. Then I want to dive into just kind of what's going on in the insurance marketplace. And we'll work through some some other things that I'm really curious to know. Yeah, perfect. Um, so you and I have known each other for a while now, but um, I don't know if you know my story and, and how I got into it. But the, the the I guess the church version is I used to sell insurance. And then I realized around 2000 that the insurance companies always had more money than I did. So I wanted to figure out how could I become an insurance company? How could I get some of that insurance company money? Um, so my partner, Jared, and I, we went on a path because I'm kind of a researcher by nature and realized how they're taxed. I came across a book that was written in the early 80s by somebody named Andrew Tobias. And he used to write a lot of financial books back in the 70s and 80s. And that book was called The Invisible Bankers. And it was all about the insurance industry and, and the special tax benefits they got and how the reserves worked and how they could accumulate hundreds of millions of dollars a year and still declare losses. And I'm like, wow, I, I need to get into this. So we started our own insurance company. We built that and then said, you know what? Why don't we take this skill that we have and then and 
start running insurance companies for other people. And that's what we've been doing exclusively since 2004 is setting up. So designing, implementing and managing insurance companies for clients. Wow. Right. And that's such a powerful point you bring out is right. The insurance companies somehow seem to always have money, don't they? They do. Yeah. So talk to me a little bit about what you see going on in the traditional insurance marketplace right now. Oh, I mean, right now it doesn't really matter what industry you're in. It, it's kind of a mess. Um, so macroeconomically, the insurance companies, they take in premiums. So you start off with the fact most of them are uh, publicly traded, but they take in income as premiums. And then they make investment returns on the reserves that they're sitting on. But they do have some expenses. They have reinsurance. They have claims. Um, they have commissions that they pay out. But these insurance companies have to give a dividend to their shareholders. And most of their investments have to be in long-term bonds, either long-term corporate bonds or municipal bonds or federal bonds, U.S. government bonds. Well, what's happened was from at, starting in 2012 or 13 premiums, we were in a soft market. Insurance goes in hard and soft market cycles. Mm -hmm. And what happened was we've been in a extended soft market where premiums kept going down and down and down every year. And then so their premiums are going down. And then their investment returns because of bonds. I mean, I don't have to tell you as an investment advisor. I mean, what have interest rates on long-term corporate and government bonds done between 2013 and 2020? Yeah, exactly. So they haven't, you know, agents don't want to make less commission. So the only real lever they had was purchasing less reinsurance. And that's exactly what they did. So in a macroeconomic time or, or view, when COVID hit, they purchased less reserve, less reinsurance, and they've had to pay out more and more and more claims. So as a result, they basically decimated the capital and surplus of the insurance industry in America, where wow. the reinsurers really haven't been hit at all. Um, now, premiums have been going up since the fourth quarter of 2017, but it was a very slow uptick. But now you're seeing the, the estimates that I'm reading from AM Best and other rating agencies and industry publications are the insurance premiums are going to have to go up anywhere between 30 and 40 percent a year for the next four to five years just for them to build back the surplus to where it was before the pandemic. Wow. Oh my gosh. That's yeah. a, that's frightening. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Well, and also during COVID, there were a lot of insurance policies and a lot of people thought they were protected from things like business interruption or supply chain interruption, but all of a sudden the big insurers decided, well, no, this is a global pandemic, so we're not going to pay out anything. Yeah, exactly. And, and so, right, how frustrating is that when, you know, here you have a policy that you've been paying on for years and, you you know, we finally have a real global pandemic, right? A, a true risk that no one could have seen. And your insurance company says, ah, we're not going to cover that one for you. 
Yeah, correct. But we also have clients who who are in their own insurance companies for years, their own captive insurance companies, and they had business interruption policies that covered viral and bacterial events. So back to 2015, 16 with MERS and SARS, we've covered wow. that inside of captives. So as a result, just the pure claims, we probably had $60 million in claims that have been paid due to the pandemic. But more importantly, the business owners that paid money into their captive to cover the risks of their business for years, and then they didn't have claims, they built up this war chest. So when they, they had, when the times were bad during the pandemic, they could say, okay, I wanna take a loan. So we went to the regulators and said, you know what, we, this client needs to take a $4 million loan because they're having trouble. Mm-hmm. And the regulators were very good at giving loans or the clients just took a dividend distribution. Wow. wow. All right. So, so we know that the, the traditional market is a, a little messy. And, and we started talking about these captive insurance companies. And, and I know years ago, I had no idea what these were. And in fact, it's interesting because advisors in my industry, if you ask them, hey, do you know what captives are? About 50% of them will put their hand up and say, oh, yeah, I have, I have some idea of what a captive is. But then if you press in further and you ask the advisors, well, have you ever done one single captive for one single client? That number drops to about 6%. So less than one in 10 advisors have actually ever implemented a captive strategy for one single client. So, so pretty lo- low bar. You've done quite a few of these. So, so let's talk a, a little bit about what a captive is and, and, and how it functions. Yeah, great. So a captive, it's, it's easy to understand. It's an insurance company that a business sets up to insure their, the risk of their business or their employees. So you're a licensed, regulated insurance company. Now you can do them. You can do them in many different jurisdictions. You could do them here in the U.S. You can do them in Bermuda. You can do them in Cayman. You can do them Turks and Caicos. I mean, you there there are probably over a hundred different jurisdictions around the world in which you can do them. Most of ours we do are in uh, domestically in the U.S because they're such great tax benefits to having your own insurance company domestically that there's really no reason to go offshore. I find the only reason to go offshore is because you have a business offshore. So if you're, we're doing a, a gold mine in Panama and Brazil right now, there's no reason for their insurance company to be in the U S because the entire business is in Brazil hmm. or Panama. Okay. So, um, so, so right. The, the captive, it's, it's a, it's a, an insurance company that the business sets up to protect the risk of the business or its employees. Correct. So, so what are some risks that a dental practice may face? Cause, cause I know I've, you know, if you're listening to this, you may be thinking, well, I've got my, you know, insurance policies through, you know, the dentist insurance company. I've got my professional liability, like, like I'm covered. What are the risks I face? So, so walk us through a couple of the risks that you can cover. Yeah. I mean, that that's great. And before we go there, I mean, there's, yeah. there's two, two, uh, points. So in order to be considered an insurance company in the U S, um, under the IRS rules, you have to be a C corp mm. or an LLC taxes, a C corp. And you also have to have a December 31st year end. Those okay. are just little minor details. 
but as a, as a dental practice, um, I'm just thinking about our dental practices. They, they know they need professional liability right off the bat. So they have med mal. Usually, I mean, they, they could be with a group captive. There are some dental group captive insurance programs that actually run well. But in the old days of insurance, you used to have an insurance policy was, let's call it 25 pages with five pages of exclusions. Well, now those are flipped. Now your insurance policy is five pages with 25 pages of exclusions. So it's important to look at the policies you have. So we have some dental professionals, endodontists, orthodontists, um, who will write professional liability in their captive, or if they have a good policy, they can always write a, a what's called a difference in conditions policy, a DIC. And what that means is it says, if anything's excluded from your professional liability or your med mal, then this policy picks it up. We have, um, we have clients that write administrative E&O. So that's a regulatory body coming back and saying, you know, or a dental board or someone else that said, you have to change this practice in your business or you have, you know, this is done incorrectly. So they, they could, it could cover fines and penalties and other stuff in your administrative E&O. Um, we do cover a fair amount of business interruption. You know, most of your, you know, the, most of your listeners probably had some period of time where during COVID, where their business was shut down for some period of time. I don't know if it's a month or two months or, you know, a year, but most practices were shut down for some period of time till we all knew what was going on. So business interruption, we've written a lot with um, dental practices. Um, cyber liability, a lot of them have cyber already and electronic data liability policies. But one thing that's usually excluded, which is where they actually could get hit is HIPAA, meaning somebody, there's an intrusion in their software and they're able to get medical records. And if they're able to get the medical records, then, you know, it usually excluded from the policy and those fines are huge. Um, another thing, let's going back um, to, to the administrative ENO is some dental practices do a lot of work with Medicare patients, Medi-Cal, uh, people that are on government assistance. And because I'm thinking of one dentist in Chicago where he has a bunch of vans and he goes to the schools and meets with, you know, and, and does the teeth there. Well, there was a period of time where, because he got it, he got his money from the school system and the school system says, well, we want to audit you, but you still have to keep performing these services. So he went for a year and a half without getting money. And then they came back and they said, oh yeah, all your records match. And now we're going to pay you 
the money that we withheld from you for the last 18 months. Well, he got his money under administrative E&O. He was pulling that money every single month. He was just billing to the insurance company. But when they actually paid the insurance company, just like all insurance companies, they subrogate. So he could get double paid. So if we paid out $180,000 for those visits, then when they paid him the 180, the insurance company was able to recoup those dollars. Wow. Wow. So, so, so what I really kind of hear you saying is that the risks are going to be very customized based upon the, the specific dental practice. And really kind of the, the starting point is to figure out what do you actually have coverage for through your traditional policies and then let's look at how we can supplement these risks or add additional coverages that you may not be covered for. Correct. Okay. So, so these are not an a policy that they all write, including because we have we have mutual clients together. Mm-hmm. And one thing they wrote was trade credit insurance, meaning they bill the insurance company a certain amount that they're supposed to get, and then the insurance company says, "Ah, you know what? We're we're just not going to pay it." Yeah. Or they perform services on their patients. And then they bill their patients. And then there's always a certain amount of money that goes 30, 60, 90, 120 plus days late. And they can file over 120 days. They just file that trade credit to their own captive insurance company and get reimbursed for the money that that they weren't getting from their patients. Yeah. Well, and another thing, I I was on a call the other night with a, a group of dental leaders running very successful organizations. And the conversation of just patient financing was going on. And some were talking about some of these buy now, pay later solutions. Some were even talking about, you know, they self-finance the the patients when they come in. So they'll carry the financing on their book. They essentially are, you know, extending credit to the patient. But oftentimes, and not too often, but, you know, there are some patients who decide to not pay their bills. It's a small percentage. And so I, I posed the question, right, is this something you would insure against? And it sounds like that could be something that could also be written into your insurance company is the risk of patients not paying you if you're self-financing their treatment. Yep, correct. And our our clients together, they have they have that. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. And we've put in dental warranty have, programs for for retreatment. Yeah. So there there's there's a lot of neat things that can be done. So 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 let's look oh, at this. Hold on a second. Not yeah. to interrupt you, but just say what you said again, because that's that's one thing that they they all like. Oh, the, the dental warranty program. Correct. Yes. Yep. Yeah. So explain how that works. Um, so, I mean, I wish my dentist had this uh, yesterday because this weekend I cracked a crown that I just put on. Oh. I mean, literally... It, it's been on for not just put on. It's been on for like nine months. And I don't know why do I, it was like a salad and all of a sudden it felt something sharp. And basically there's the metal underneath and then the, the ceramic part or whatever is on top. That's supposed to be so hard to crack. And they're like, yeah, you know what? It was just, it was misdone. It, you know, and you just don't know it's the luck of the draw. Well, I went in yesterday and they're like, okay, we need to get you a new crown. Um, and the crown people will cover that. But they're not covering the, the work to take the crown off and to make the temporary and everything else. So, you know, at the end of the day, they tried to make me feel, well, it's not going to be the $1,200 or $1,500 it was before. We're only going to charge you $400 for our service. I'm like, 
you know, this is completely lame. But if they had a warranty, like your clients do, it says if, if this goes wrong, then, you know, you're, they would just submit that to their own insurance company and get reimbursed for their time, not profit, but just the time that they weren't able to see somebody else because they were providing this service. Yeah. But it's, you know, it's, it's key. And no dentist is, you know, no dental profession professional is going to walk away from, from one of their patients if they have a problem with their work. Yeah, it's so true. And, and this is a way that enables them to get paid for that work without having to rebuild the patient. Correct. Yeah. So, so let, let's walk through a little scenario of kind of like how that works, right? So, so you pay premiums to your captive, right? You write these policies and you, you know, get that insurance and right. And that premium that you write is a tax deduction, correct? Correct. Okay. So that goes in on a pre-tax basis. And then let's say you have a claim and you get reimbursed for that claim. Is that income to the practice? How does, how does that come back to the practice? Yeah. Great question. So the insurance company is a C corp, as I mentioned. So it's a separate entity, separate tax paying entity than the dental practice. So the dental practice pays premium just like they would to any other insurance company, AIG Zurich Liberty, and that money goes into the insurance company. Now, when the money's in the insurance company, then the insurance company doesn't pay income taxes on their premium dollars. They also don't pay taxes on their underwriting profit. They only pay taxes on their realized investment earnings. So that's where dealing with you and it, it's good because between, so let's say that somebody had them, let's just throw this out. Let's say you had a practice, you have a bunch of employees and you're paying a million dollars a year in premium and your claims have been very low, but you would pay that million to your own McNeely insurance if you're the dentist. And then that million dollars sits there. If you were to get a, there's a difference, as you know, between what your rate of return is and what your realized rate of rate of return is. So you could get a 10% rate of return, meaning that's, you know, it's now $1.1 million, but your realized, meaning the stuff that was bought and sold was 50,000. Well, you only pay cor federal corporate income taxes on that $50,000. So that'd be a 21% tax rate, not your underwriting profit. Which is, which is key. So if you use ETFs, if you use what, what you're familiar with, tax loss harvesting and all the other stuff, then you have the ability to actually, you know, manage the taxes of that insurance company. But that, that gets us off the topic. Um, you pay the million dollars over, the money's sitting there, it gets invested, and hopefully you have an underwriting profit. But let's say you have a claim. Let's say that there's a, a warranty. Okay. Then that money comes back to the, to the business and that would not be taxable to the business. Now trade credit, it's, it's interesting, but trade credit would be, let's say that I don't pay your bill. 
and I owe a thousand dollars. Well, 400 of that was your actual billing cost and 600 was profit. You cannot, insurance cannot, it's supposed to make you where you, it, it's in, a, in an indemnification is the technical word. So it's supposed to put you in the same position you would have been before this incident happened. So you're out the $400 because that's your true time. You submit the 400, it comes back because it replaces income. That's taxable to the business. But the good thing is, is when that 400, you're going to write your time off against that. So you, you know, hypothetically, you can, you know, net that out. Yeah. But if you think about, just think about auto and auto insurance, you bought a car for 10,000, the car gets totaled, the insurance company sends you a check for $8,000. That 8,000 is not taxable to the business, but disability insurance, let's say you're, you're disabled and that money comes back, that's taxable to the person because it's replacing income. So that's a, you know, high level way to look at it. If it replaces income, it's taxable. If it's not replacing income, it doesn't. Yeah. And actually, if any of my listeners, if you want a copy of Becoming Seriously Wealthy, we've got a great case study in here that actually walks through how powerful these captive insurance companies can be for you and your business. And it walks through, right, what is, you know, underwriting expense looks like, what does the profit look like, what is the, you know, the, the total net income to you look like over time. And they're, they're very, very powerful strategies. And so... Yeah, right. With that, Wes, right, we, we've talked about, you know, what a captive is. And, and it's this insurance company, right, separate from the business that helps ensure the risk of the business and the, the risk of your employment. We've talked about, you know, some of the tax implications. How do you set it up? And I, I know one of the questions I get a whole lot, and I'm sure you do, too, is how long does the money have to stay in the insurance company? Yes, that that's if it's not the first question, it's the second question. Um and it's not necessarily how long does it have to stay in there, but what can I do with it? Yes. Because um, most of our clients don't pull the money out of their insurance company. Because when they do, let's say they liquidate their insurance company, they're paying long-term capital gains on the growth between the capital they put in and what it's worth now. Um, or they pull a dividend, you're paying long-term dividend taxes. Most of our clients would pull loans from it or use that insurance company to invest in other LLCs. But when you pay your premium, so a good way to think about it is think about it like your regular insurance, your uh, med mal insurance, your professional liability. You pay a premium today and let's just say, or tomorrow, let's say it's July 1st. And your policy goes July 1st of 2022 through July 1st of 2023. When you pay that premium to that to your insurance company, the year in which that money is potentially used for claims has to sit in reserves in the insurance company. Now, just because it's in reserves doesn't mean you cannot invest it. You can invest it. But we usually tell the financial advisors who are investing it because we don't do any, we don't sell product and we don't touch money. We just run these insurance companies. We tell them you may want to keep it a little more conservative because the, the way the department of insurance looks at it is we have a bunch of tests, you know, ratios we have to do every single month. But 
I always use the analogy of margin. I mean, earlier this year, well, or last year, we had a, a lot of people saying, well, I want to put all my money in my insurance company in Bitcoin. And you're like, really? I'm, we won't even debate whether that's a good idea or a bad idea. But the way the regulators look at it is it's almost like a margin account. If you put a million dollars in there and you're saying, we need this money in reserves for potential claims, and then suddenly it goes, Bitcoin goes from 60000 to 30000 Well, your million dollars just went to five hundred. You would have blown through one of your ratios. So we come to you and we're like, oh, you know what? Bad news. You have 30 days to bring it back up to $800,000, or we have to notify the Department of Insurance. And then, so what happens is they have to put in $300,000 of extra capital into their insurance company just so they're not in violation of the rules. And then, so your policy expires in July 1st of 2023. You pay a new premium July 1st of 2023 that goes through 2024. What we do is it's, it's not in the investment account, but on the books of the captive. It goes from reserves to excess capital and surplus. Once it's in excess capital and surplus, you have a lot more flexibility. That's where you can do more creative things with it because you're now telling the regulators that 22 to 23 year is closed. We don't need that money anymore. We paid new money for the 2023 through 2024. So you're always like a year in arrears as far as what you can do with the money. But yeah, you still can put it in stocks, bonds, mutual funds, ETFs. I mean, all the stuff you are so good at putting together a good diversified conservative portfolio. You just can't. And by doing that, then that way your reserves are not at risk if you've got a claim. But once that money moves over, then, you know, you can be more risky with it because you don't require those funds for claims anymore. Correct. Yeah. No, once again, such a powerful, powerful strategy. And not just the Department of Insurance, but it's also the IRS. Because remember, you're going to the IRS because this is, you're taking a million dollar tax deduction. Sorry, I just sat down. Yeah. Uh, you're taking a million dollar tax deduction because you're saying our actuary says we need this million dollars there for potential claims. Mm -hmm. And what happens if it goes from a million down to 500 and your insurance company gets audited? How do you make the argument to the IRS that you really needed a million dollars when all you have is 500? Yeah, very true. Uh, and so, right. So, so the money stays in the captive, right? It's, it's in this C corp and you know, what, what can you do with the funds? Right. You know, right. We, we've got the underwriting profits, right. We've been protecting our business and, and now, right. As the doctor, I'm, I'm ready to, to use some of these funds. Can I buy a house with it? Can I like, you know, take a vacation. Like, like, how do I get access to the funds? Uh, vacation, sure. Just take a dividend from your insurance company. And we routinely go to the Department of Insurance because people need a dividend. Uh, and how are those dividends taxed? At long-term dividend rates. Real, okay, so, so, right, so, so this is really a tax arbitrage play, too. And you're able to convert what would be ordinary income into dividend income. Correct. If you have no claims, because remember, you're buying it for coverage for your yeah. business and whatever's left over after a period of time, 
then you could go to the Department of Insurance and say, well, you know what, I want a dividend out of it. Um, we don't usually recommend people to buy real estate inside of their captives because you lose the depreciation. Correct. But what I did is I used my corporation to provide the mortgage on a property. So now I make a monthly mortgage payment over to that corporation. So essentially you became your own bank. Yeah. We have clients who, correct. We have clients who have their captive. They're not buying apartment buildings, but they have a limited partnership. So they put in some money, there's some debt finance money, and then their captive comes in as a limited partner in that limited partnership. So you're still getting the, you're still getting the income or you're still getting the, the upside of the real estate while the real estate still gets some depreciation and some other things. Yeah. But yeah, we have clients that factor their own accounts receivable. We have clients that we've set up, help them set up leasing companies where they need automobiles. And then their, their captive becomes, they loan money to the leasing company. The, that leasing company goes out and buys automobiles that then they lease out and they're getting a lease payment and then they can depreciate the auto at the same level that they uh, get the payments in. So, I mean, it, where there's a will, there's a way. Yeah. Right. So, so in essence, right. And, and a lot of the doctors I work with, right. They've got families. They're really concerned about the next generation and, and they're always looking for ways that they can thrive no matter what's happening in this uncertain world. And, and this really is an opportunity to protect their practice against risks they might not be insured against. Plus, over time, you can, you know, you have the potential to create excess capital in your insurance company and essentially create a, a family bank that you can go to and borrow funds for. And there's even a, a generational piece in there in terms of estate planning, too, isn't there, Wes? Yeah, there, there certainly can be. Let's say. And, that yeah. So, so, right. Let's say you've got one of these and, and, and now, you know, you, your, your spouse has passed away. What happens to those funds? What's the tax implications? Well, I mean, if you're, let's say, husband and wife owns a corporation and you happen to be in a community property state, the, the corporation gets a full step up in basis at the first person's death. So my wife knows the day after I die, she's to liquidate everything or begin the process to liquidate everything. Because that way we would owe no federal or state income taxes on it. And now that those assets would be in her estate, but that's what, you know, a lot of life insurance and good, you know, will and trust planning and other stuff, you know, helps eliminate that burden that, sh that she would feel, or I would feel it if she were to pass away. Um, but you know, you can, you can also, let's say your children are in the business, you know, you can have the, you can have the captive owned by the children. There's specific rules regarding who can own it. Uh, it's not like the old days, the pre 2017, where a patriarch or matriarch could set up an insurance company that's owned by their children and then basically pass millions of dollars past the estate and gift tax line that that can, cannot happen anymore. But there are certain ways to do it 
uh, where you can where you can minimize what the taxes would be at a either the first part of spouse's deaths. And I know you and I have talked about uh, for people that live on the East Coast, New York, New Jersey, they don't have community property, but their insurance company could be owned in a Alaska community property trust mm-hmm. where they would basically get community property treatment, even though they're not in a community property state. Yeah. Yeah. So, so really, right. It, once again, it comes back to these are highly customizable and the structure and the way you set them up really needs to kind of align with your goals and what's important to you. And so, so, you know, for, for you listening to this, if you're thinking, Hey, this, this may be something you want to look at, it really makes sense to get really clear on what your goals are first. And then once you have a clear view of, of where you're heading, then that can help you shape all these different decisions that go in to customizing your own insurance company. Because once again, these are not off the shelf things, are they, Wes? They really are bespoke and built for the client to their Correct. custom specifications. Yeah, we always tell clients, if you've seen one captive, you've seen one captive. That's yeah. it. I mean, we, you know, with over a thousand captives, I don't think there's two that are exactly the same. Um, and so, yeah, it's highly customized based on the individual business and the individual risks of that business. Yeah. Now, some things overlap. Like I would say 60% of the captives that we have in the last few years are have health insurance and workers comp in them because those are two premiums that are going up crazy. And there's really good ways to control costs hmm. and we're seeing fabulous results okay. have group captive solutions so let's say you don't you're not paying a million dollars you know excess policies we have an, a group excess program so in captives are single parent captives but you can also have group captives where let's say that that you had 50 of your listeners all came together and said, you know, we want our, we want an insurance company, but our premiums are too small. You could create the dental wealth nation insurance company that does policies. And then they all pay a pro rata share of the expenses. I mean, we have some medical practices that do that. Uh, and then excess, a group excess policy where let's say that somebody needs five, they want $5 million of, of excess insurance basically umbrella coverage. Well, we have a program where they pay in for that and then they take 20% of the risk and it's a quota share. And then 80% is taken by reinsurers. And so if there's a hundred thousand dollar claim, they pay 20 and then the reinsurers pay 80 million dollar claim. They pay 200 and the other people pay 800. And that's a, that's a great solution. Everyone goes into it for, we go into it and say, hey, you know what? This is the amount of time that, that you're going to go into it. You have a thriving practice. You're going to grow it. But then, as you and I know, sometimes practices get sold. And we were dealing with that last year with, with somebody with a pretty new captive. So they're also nimble because at that point, they were going to sell their business and they per the acquirer was going to cover a lot of the risks that they were already putting inside their captive. And they had reps and warranties. So they had to leave a certain amount of the purchase price with the purchaser, the acquirer. 
So we decided, well, what if you're captive, wrote a reps and warranties policy for it. And the acquirer, once they understood it, I mean, they're like, yeah, this is perfect. So instead of leaving all that money with the, with the acquirer, they paid it out to the dentist, the practice. And then the prac, the captive issued a policy to the acquirer. And now instead of the, let, let's just say that that amount of money was a million dollars, just because I like nice, easy numbers. If, if in order for the acquirer to pay the seller the million dollars, they either had to borrow it with interest or they had to earn it and pay taxes on it and then use that million dollar net to pay over. And then the dentist had to pay money on that money, pay taxes on that money. Where in this, it was a deductible expense to the purchase, to the acquirer, and it went into the captive of the seller. And then ultimately, when they get out of it, they'll be liquidating for long-term capital gains or, you know, they're in community property state and married. So will they get a step up in basis? So it's it's one of those rare win-wins in the world. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Right. If you're looking far enough ahead and you realize, hey, you know, I, I am going to sell my dental organization someday and you start doing some of that pre-exit planning now. Right. A captive can make a lot of sense leading up to that that sale. Exactly. Yeah. So so let's talk, you know, briefly about who does this make sense for? Right. If you're listening to this and wondering, hey, does this, this make sense for me? Is it worth exploring? Who are the people who should look into this? What, what are some things they should be considering before even talking about implementing one of these? Um, I mean, they have to be paying. They have to be paying enough money to make it worth the juice has to be worth the squeeze. Mm -hmm. Um, if you're paying a hundred thousand dollars a year in premiums, then it may not make sense at three, 400,000, it starts making sense. If you have 50 employees and you start looking at, uh, medical insurance, group medical insurance and workers comp for those, that's where it can make sense. You know, I would say definitely if you're approaching a million dollars between all your insurances, it does make sense. But I don't want people to say, well, I'm not, I'm not paying that much money in my insurance mm -hmm. because your, you know, the clients we have together weren't paying a million dollars of insurance. No, they were paying a couple hundred thousand dollars. But when yeah. we went and looked at their insurance, we're like, oh, you don't have administrative E&O. You don't have business interruption insurance. You don't have all these other things. And, and we started looking at all the coverages they really needed to protect themselves. We looked at how much money they were keeping, you know, like you mentioned clients that are, that are doing the financing and they keep that on the books basically. And they're not getting the money yet. They, he looked at that and said, oh, well, you know, my, between my trade credit and what I'm doing in warranties, because he was doing warranties, you know, offering a warranty to his clients. You know, we were able to, and I think it was, I, one of them was $350,000, $400,000 a year is what they were putting into their insurance company. Um, but that makes a lot, that still makes a lot of sense yeah. for them to do. Yeah, and, and you and I are even working with a, another doctor right now. 
And he's reached a point where his retirement plans, he's kind of maxed those out. He can't put any more money in. And he's you know several years off from you know selling the practice and, and transitioning into the next phase of life. And he's saying, you know, there really is a lot of risk in my business that, that's not covered, that 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 I know, you know, leaves me exposed to things happening, whether it's my my brand and the reputation I've built over these years or staffing issues, or, you know, once again, business interruption, right? A lot of things. And he's saying, you know, I, I, I hate the taxes I'm paying, but I also want to be protected against all these risks. And, and, you know, I think we're dialing in a premium of right around, you know, four or 500,000 for him by looking at the different coverages that are available. And we're, we're just going through that analysis process of looking at what's covered and what are the gaps, right? How can we add value? Yeah, correct. And that's, I mean, that's, that's perfect because it gets in, I see the, at the bottom, you can make it, but can you keep it? Mm -hmm. And it's, and it's one in three medical professionals will be sued in their business life. And you're like, well, I got a two thirds chance, but I mean, that's, that's the crazy thing is mm -hmm. so much of what you get sued for is not covered because no one really reads their policies. You brought it up right in the beginning about COVID. I mean, most people thought that if they had to shut down their business, they would be covered for business interruption. And then they found out, no, you're not covered because the the building itself wasn't permanently damaged by this COVID virus. And that's when you're like, oh, man, I mean, how many people thought they had coverage that they didn't? And it was a it's a financial hardship. Yeah. That's where we have professionals. I mean, we're really good at insurance and our coverage professionals here working here, they, they dig through. So at the end, before you, as part of the analysis, you know what your policies are. You know what you're covered for. You know what you're not covered for. You know what your exclusions are. And some of them are easy fixes. Like go back to your, let's say you have six different practices in six different addresses, but two of the six aren't listed on your policies. Those are easy fixes. Go back to your agent and have those added to your existing policy. Yeah. You know, but it, as soon as you don't know that they're not added until you have something happens there, then you're like, oh yeah, I'd like this property added because somebody slipped and fell in the parking lot. And then they're like, oh, there's a claim. Yeah, no, we can't add it after the fact. I mean, it's, it's stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. And right. And life, it's got a lot of, of risk in it already. And my philosophy is you don't want to take more risk than you have to. And if you can protect yourself against some of these unknowns, that's a great thing to do because there are people coming for your hard earned wealth that you've worked so hard for. And uh, anything you can do to, to really protect yourself against, you know, your assets being unjustly taken from lawsuit or some other unjust means, those are things you want to pursue. And that's one of the ways you can really thrive in the midst of the uncertain world that we live in. Yeah. So any closing thoughts before we sign off here, Wes, or anything else I should have asked you or, or, or kind of taken a deep dive into? Yeah. Well, I mean, the thing is, is it, it's like an onion. I mean, we could keep unpeeling and unpeeling and unpeeling. And right now I'm an expert witness in a case. And I think I've written 50 pages of, you know, single space stuff. I mean, so that the concept is simple. So my partner, Jared, you know, Jared, but you know, he's a, he's plays poker and 
he said, poker, there's a saying, poker takes five minutes to learn and a lifetime to master. Mm. And it's kind of like captives. The simple thing is it's a corporation you set up to ensure the risk of your business or your employees. But underneath there, there's so many nuances and how do you do it and what do you do? And, you know, it's, it's, it's not complex for us, but it's complex for the business owner. That's why all we do is run that so they can keep running their business. But, you know, it's, I mean, you're, your clients and your friends are, I mean, they're educated when they come in. I mean, yeah. it's great. So we can have these deeper dive conversations of, you know, the what ifs, you know, what if I have this lawsuit? What if I have this? What if the warranties go bad? What if I put a certain kind of filling in somebody that then gets recalled because of, I mean, all of these things and sure, will they, Will the filling people, you know, give you a better product to replace it with for free? Probably. But Mm -hmm. what about the time? What about the thousands of patients that you've seen where you've put in that, you know, two surface amalgam and you're like, oh my God. I mean, it's, it's the unknown and that's what everybody needs to protect themselves out and at least look. And too often they don't know about the risks that they have. And then Sometimes they just, they know about the risk, but when they look at buying the insurance, they're like, man, you know, for example, intellectual property, there are some people that you have and some of your listeners that have a specific product that they sell in the marketplace because they found a better way to do it. And then somebody always will rip that product off because they don't have intellectual property insurance, but then they look and they're like, Oh, I like intellectual property insurance, but it's so expensive. So they opt not to do it. But if they were to put it in their own insurance company, we have a client right now that just they're they're They had patents, they had a product they were selling and Siemens came in and stole it. And their captive gave them the money to fight them legally. And the first down payment from Siemens was $10 million. And that's real wow. money. Wow. How and we, have, we have some dental practices that have, that, that have, I don't know if you call them durable or disposable um, dental medical equipment. And so they have it manufactured in China and brought over here. And then they sell that as a, as a separate business. Well, they, they have all the insurance in the world for their business, for their practice, but where they're selling the product and where they have the most liability, they've got no coverage. And you're like, man, this is, so that's where I think it's, it's important. I mean, you and I work closely with your, with your clients and, you know, so we know what their entire business is. Yep. Yeah. And actually earlier when I mentioned a, a statistic, I'll, I'll correct it. I mentioned that only 6.1% of advisors have actually provided one single captive to one client. The, the number is actually worse than that. I, I, I reversed them. It's not 6.1, it's 1.6 of advisors. Oh, wow. So, so right. So, so less than 2%, right. If you're in a, right, that's two out of a hundred financial advisors that have actually done one single captive for one single client. 
And you and I have done several together. And so I, and I continue to, to look at these as such a powerful solution to really help people mitigate risk, right? Because that's what you want to do. You want to protect yourself and you want to, you know, if possible, get a tax benefit. And that, that's really what these are. These are an insurance company that happens to have a tax benefit. And if you approach it that way, you're going to be okay. Yep. I completely agree. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I guess maybe that that's a closing point is, you know, captives can get a bad rap out there. And we've certainly seen them pop up in the news. If you Google them, you're going to probably find a thousand and one reasons why they why they don't work. And that probably is the mindset that goes into setting these up and, and who's setting it up and, and what they're actually trying to do with it. So talk a little bit about kind of the risk to a captive and how do we stay out of trouble if we do this? Yeah, I mean, that's great. Yeah. When you Google and now I mean. What came to mind when you were just mentioning that was CPAs. So a business owner says, yeah, I like the idea. And then they go to their CPA and the CPA says, no, now what's the question? And you're like, well, I, you know, because they've heard there have been negative things done. Um, you know, the IRS started going after captives in 2014, 15, and they went after a few captive promoters as promoters of tax shelters. And I really think the IRS got it right. I mean, the people in the industry think that's that that's heresy, but it's really not because they were they were promoting stuff as a way for you to take money, deduct it from your business, and you know pass it to the next generation without estate or gift taxes. And the IRS hated that, um, so they went after some life insurance companies that were promoting it, and then they went after these promoters. Uh, these captive managers as promoters of tax shelters. And <clears throat> there's been, they've heard seven cases start to finish. We've heard they've had six verdicts that came out. So when the IRS started their auditing, these captive promoters said, you know what, their clients, they didn't even really go through an audit. The auditor just said, you know what, we're disallowing your deduction. It's not an insurance company. And then enough people said, no, you never even looked at this. So there were 1,200 cases filed in tax court. And so if you're the IRS and you have 1,200 cases, it's kind of rhetorical, but what are the cases you try first? And it's the ones with the best set of facts for the IRS and the worst set of facts for the taxpayer. And that's what actually happened is the first five went against the taxpayer and if you actually read the cases, and that's where I would recommend people to do, read those cases because on a gut level, they don't make sense. You know, when, in, when a jewelry store, this is the Avrahami case, the jewelry store in Scottsdale, Arizona was writing terrorism insurance for a couple hundred thousand dollars a year. And, you know, they could buy that in the traditional market for 2000 the IRS says no. Um, and then they they wrote an IRS litigation defense policy that said in the event the captive was audited and the deductions denied, the captive would pay the penalties, interest, and taxes for the business. So tax court said, if you thought this was legitimate at all, why would you buy that policy? So I wasn't I wasn't surprised that the 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 ones that have come out have come out against the taxpayer. Now, there was a case in October called the Puglisi egg farm case. 
and it had a great set of facts and the IRS realized it because you have, you also have to look at, you have the auditor, they're not allowed to do anything. Then you go up to appeals. The appeals people aren't allowed to do anything. So then it people, if they say, I want to go to tax court, then it goes to an IRS attorney who looks at the facts of the case and they have to judge independently. Is this a fight I want to take? So a lot of the cases, I mean, there've been a, a lot of cases that when they file for tax court, the IRS just basically walks away and says no, but those don't get publicized. So this one case, Puglisi said, no, we're taking it to tax court. And then the IRS, they tried to fight and they tried to say, well, we're not going to charge you with penalties or the whole thing. So they, they actually won the case. And the judge in that case, because the IRS wanted the case dismissed and told tax court, you cannot rule on this. But what the IRS tax court judge said is, okay, we're, we're going to assess them $100 in taxes and penalties, and I'm going to rule. And the IRS, you have 17 issues with captives. And I, here's my, here's my courts, the court's response to your 17 positions. I mean, it's, it's a great read. Hmm. Um, so I think now there's going to be a different, you know, tax court cannot handle. I mean, now it's over 2000 cases filed in tax court. The IRS tax court cannot handle those 2000 cases. And it's simply because the IRS refuses to give very clear guidance on what they want. So then they came out and they said, well, you have to file this 8886 tax form as a transaction of interest. Well, some people sued the IRS because all you're doing is spending, you know, hundreds of thousands of hours for all these captives for them to put together all the information for the IRS in one place that they already have on the tax return. So the federal court ruled against the IRS earlier this year in March and said that the tax that the 8886 form was arbitrary and capricious. And they were and they required the IRS to return all the 8886s back to the people that filed them, hmm. and give them back all their information. So I think the pendulum has swung one way and it's starting to come back. But I would just say if it you need to get the facts and you know, I would, I would debate up and down all day long with anybody, the merits of captives and why they're so important. And then I can go point by point to say, this is why I believe that those other captives that lost in tax court were bad captives. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, right. It's really kind of like anything in life, right? It's got to pass the sniff test, right? It's got to be legitimate, right? And if you're, if you're, you know, writing insurance for shark bites of your employees in your office, that's probably not going to fly. But if you're writing policies for slip and falling in your office, well, that's a little bit more legitimate and more likely to happen. So, right. It's got to at least be a legitimate use. And if you're doing that, that's going to help you steer clear and stay out of trouble. Correct. And the thing is, is I think I would say, as you know, we're very conservative in what we do. We took a different approach to pricing out risk than everybody else. Because when you look at it, when you're the when you're the sixth largest in the world, okay, I'm not going to lose my business and put all of my hard work at jeopardy so McNeely Dentist could take a tax deduction. 
Exactly. And that's why the deductions we, we get for clients aren't nearly as high as some of the promoters, but we can defend them day in and day out. Yeah, you've got a lot more riding on the line, which is which is, in my view, those are the kind of professionals you want to work with who also have something at stake because they're going to help keep you safe. And and Wes, you've also written two great books on the subject, right? We've got Taken Captive and then uh, you can make it. But can you keep it? Correct. And so I'd encourage you to check out those books. I'll put some links down below if you're you're interested in there. And so, hey, Wes, thank you for being such a, a wealth of knowledge and, and really helping us understand that there is an option to the traditional insurance marketplace, especially as premiums keep rising. And, and thank you for, for really, you know, giving us that new way about thinking about insurance and, and a roadmap so we can create, you know, turn expenses into a profit center. And and, and I know I certainly feel more empowered. I've, I've felt empowered for years about these captives. And that's why I continue to, to work with you and, and help my clients, you know, really protect themselves against these unknown risks in life and, and build those amazing lives of significance. And so thank you again, just for, for all your help and, and for being such a great resource. And uh, it's an honor to have you on my team. Oh, thank you, Tim. Thanks for all you're doing. And I would tell all the people that listen, you know, I... I am not a dental practitioner, as you can tell, but I listen to the Dental Wealth Nation because it's called a Dental Wealth Nation. But at the same time, you know, everybody it doesn't matter if they own a pawn shop or a grocery store or they work inside of another company or whatever. They all want to build a life of, of significance. So I think, I mean, just if you're listening to this, share it with your friends because you know, they don't have to be a dental practitioner. A lot of the messages are universal that, you know, transcend dentistry. Yeah, no, well said. I, I would say probably 15 to 10% is dental specific. The rest is applicable to, to everyone. So, you know, if, you, if you're a dentist or you go to the dentist, you can listen to the podcast. <laughs> Perfect. That's what it should be. I like that. All right. Well, hey, thanks again, Wes. I will sign us off and, uh, Looking forward to to continuing conversations with you. Thank you, Tim. Have a great day. All right. You've been listening to Dental Wealth Nation. We hope you've gotten some useful and practical information from the show. Join us next time as we pull back the curtain to reveal the often hidden advice and strategies used by today's most successful individuals and families and help maximize your net worth so you can take even better care of the people you love. Till next time, make sure to hit the website at dentalwealthnation.com. 